you know, there's an issue out there today that I think we need to address as Christians. And that's all this talk about, you know, toxic masculinity that is being uh, pushed out there for whatever reason. And I want to I want to talk about, you know, what it means to be a man in current times in 2023. What is a man's man in 2023? All right, men and mariners, this is Tim Lukai here. I'm super excited to uh, be with you guys. Thanks for tuning in. This is going to be a, a really neat interview. Uh, Justin Herman, our online pastor, is joining us, and Michael Franzese, who's going to be our men's breakfast speaker January 7th. We're excited to have him. Uh, it's actually even even uh, neat because he's local. He, he's from Newport Beach now, and we get to uh, interview him and have some fun and we're really excited to have him come back in a couple of weeks to join all of us. But we're going to dig a little deeper. We're going to start with some uh, a speed round, a, a mobster speed round, we'll call it, on uh, it's just some, some questions, which uh, we'll just fire away. Justin, why don't you start us off? Well, so, you know, here's the deal. Uh, first of all, what an honor to be here. It's almost like we did this all once before and we're doing it all over again. Uh, you know, I'm sure every guy out there is wondering, because every every guy has favorite mob movies, of course. I mean, what a great genre! I'd love. I want to. I want to hear from you, Michael. What 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 is the best mob movies from your perspective? And like, what are the most accurate ones? And what are the ones that it's like? Hey, this is this is not this is not real at all. All right. Well, let's start off by naming Godfather one and two as both fiction movies, but obviously in a different class, brilliantly written, brilliantly acted, uh, you know, probably the best uh, out of the five top movies ever made. Uh, those two would be included in that. So uh, terrific movies. I love them, uh, but put them aside for a minute because they are fictional, even though they were well done. But the one movie that I've watched over and over again that I just love, I love everything about it. Number one, for its authenticity, its accuracy, because I was around at that time. I knew how accurate it was. And just everything about it was the 1996 HBO Gotti movie starring Armand DeSante and Anthony Quinn. Absolutely oh, yeah. brilliant. Uh, I've said this so many times. I've watched it. Armand and I have become friends because I've plugged this movie so often on my channels. Uh, but it was so brilliantly done. And uh, you got to watch it. If you've never seen it, you can go on YouTube, get it for free. It's terrific. You know, then let's go to Goodfellas. Obviously, anything Scorsese does is brilliant with that cast. Fairly accurate. Um, you know, Joe Pesci, he's, you know, he just steals the show. He's, he's brilliant in anything that he does. Um, so I love that. Donnie Brasco, I thought it was Al Pacino's best role as a mobster. He was brilliant as Lefty Guns. I knew Lefty. Uh, it was just so well done. I've become very, very good friends with Joe Pistone. Um, a.k.a. Donnie Brasco, who fortunately I only met once way back when. Joe tells the story of how we met at my uh, Mazda dealer. He said, Joe, I'm so glad it was only one time we never did any business together because I'd probably be in jail right now. <laughs> but uh, so good fellas, Donnie Brasco, uh, obviously Bronx Tale, brilliant, you know, fictional, but I'm friends with Chaz and uh, I love that movie. Very well done. I thought Chaz 
played a brilliant mob guy. He was he was absolutely brilliant in that. And, and he also wrote it. So he was terrific. And then, of course, Casino, you know, wonderfully done, you know, great film. So I think you know, that, that kind of rounds it up. My top five, again, excluding Godfather one and Godfather two. Love it. So in Donnie Brasco, I have to ask, uh, obviously, there's a very iconic scene uh, talking about when they explain the uh, forget about it uh, line. And I, I'm curious, is that is that a real thing? Was that, you know, Hollywood or do mobsters or I guess New Yorkers? Is that like normal vocab? Absolutely a real thing. When I was in the theater and saw that part, I think I was the only one laughing. I cracked up because it was so authentic, you know. Uh, you know, we do it all the time. Hey, what do we have? To, you know, what's the best restaurant in town? Forget about it. You know, it's Rails or whatever. You know, it, it was it was a common. I still do it now. You know, and I, I never shook it. So uh, very realistic. And, uh, you know, a lot of guys use that term and exactly the way it was said. So what's what's interesting about forget about it is that it can mean many different things depending on the way you say. It. Is that right? So yeah. what are some of the ways that you would say forget about it? You know, what's the best restaurant in town? Oh, forget about it. It's this one. You know, uh, is he a good guy? Forget about it. He's an ass. You know, things like that. <laughs> Everything was forget about it. It, it, was, it was the term that came before you said anything else. Got it. We need to bring more it. of that into our vocabulary, Tim. I don't know. I feel yeah. like we're missing out here. We're missing out. Yeah, I think we are. Here I got to tell you this. Every time I have a speaking engagement and there's a Q&A, I'm asked to say forget about it every single yeah. time. So well, uh, that that scene really had impact on people. It did. It was a, it was really a, a funny scene. And what about kind of the Hollywood uh, mobster style? I mean, it's very iconic of uh the, the, kind of the slick back hair the really nice suits the black tie is that hollywood or is that kind of a real deal well you know depending upon i mean look we dressed up a lot i mean there was times uh you know i would wear a suit during the day go home have dinner come back at night with a different suit we had to wear a suit quite a bit uh when i wasn't going into brooklyn and dealing with real mob stuff uh, we, we dressed with warm-up suits back then, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, they were big. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the good dress, there was a lot of sharp dressers. Obviously, John Gotti, you know, he was known for that, the Dapper Don. A lot of guys dressed well, and uh, you, you had to, you know, we had a certain image that we, we kept up. And, um, you know, the guys that were more business, like myself and some of the bosses, you know, they were, they were dressed up in a suit pretty often, almost every day. That's so awesome. You know, the, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions out there probably about, you know, mob guys. What are, what are some of like the, the most well-known misconceptions that you'd say are kind of like, uh, you know, that's, that's garbage. It's not really, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really explain who, who we are, who the culture of guys are. Well, you know, I think because of what's, you know, on YouTube and because of the media and the way things are portrayed, you always see a, uh, you do see like the Godfather, you did see, let, let me, let me explain it this way. When the Godfather came out, it elevated the persona of the mob to a great degree. I remember back in the seventies, guys actually started to carry themselves differently 
because of the way the Godfather presented people. Not to say that there weren't guys in that life that, you know, deserved that kind of, I mean, acted that way. But in general, it kind of elevated the persona of the mafia in America. There's no doubt about it. Godfather one and then Godfather two. Um, you know, some of the misconceptions, you know, they kind of, you know, they're not funny. You know, I'll, I'll give you one. People think, you know, when you become a made member that you become wealthy, that, you know, the mob is throwing money at you and you're yeah. getting all these different ways to earn. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely not true. Absolutely oh. not true. The, the night I got made, Halloween night, 1975, after we got made, we all, it was six of us, we all had a banquet. And one of the soldiers came in as we were eating with a brown paper bag and said to the boss, boss, should I give them all their bag of money now? The joke being, and the boss saying, yeah, you guys think that we're going to support you. No, it's the other way around. You prove your value and you're supporting the family. And boy, I found that out very quick. They don't, you know, there's certain little perks you can take advantage of, but they're not paying you anything. When a guy goes to jail, oh, his family is taken care of. Absolutely yeah. not true. Huh. One of the reasons I got involved in that life is because whatever money my dad had on the street when he was given a 50-year pr prison sentence, it ran out. And then it was up to us to fend for ourselves. And that was only for about a, you know, two and a half, three-year period. Then my mother had no support. So it was one of the reasons why I got involved in the life, because I had three younger brothers and sisters and, and my mom to support. So, you know, and people think it's different. You know, there's one big happy family and everybody's making money and everybody's taking care of each other. You know, in the Colombo family back then, uh, we had 115 made guys, guys that actually took the oath. Had a lot of associates, but 115 made guys. Out of the 115 of us, maybe 20 of us were really earning money. The rest are all, you know, who got a no-show job, who's got a little gambling operation, who's trying to make, you know, this and that. And then, of course, a lot of guys had bad habits. You know, gambling was a big a big deal back then. A lot of guys were, were broke because of it. So, uh, you know, I think those are some of the realities that get, mis, you know, misportrayed, I would say, in, in various ways. Yeah, I've been looking for a no-show job, and I haven't been able to find one anywhere. So. Yeah. It was mostly with the unions that we gave oh, yeah, the jobs out. Yeah, they don't like me there. Um, you know, man, th this is, you know, the first question that comes, you know, to mind is, you know, what got you into this to begin with? Like what, you know, and you spoke to it a little bit a second ago, um, but like it, in in broader strokes, it was it like someone personally saying, hey, you know, come, you know, let me show you what to do. Come, you know, you're in, I'm going to mentor you. You know, you're my intern for the mob for a while. Like what 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 was like the practical steps of, hey, I'm just living my life. And then, uh, OK, I'm going to be in life now. I'm going to get into it. I'm going to do it. Well, for me, there were two triggers. Number one, my dad, who was the underboss of the family, uh, got a 50 year prison sentence, which was essentially a death sentence at the time. He was 50 years old in 1970 when he went in. Now, obviously, I grew up in that life because my dad was a prominent figure and you know, I was well aware of the lifestyle, but I was going to be a doctor. I was a pre-med student, Hofstra University, when my dad got that, uh, when, he, when he finally went into prison after his conviction. And Joe Colombo kind of took me under his wing. So I had the influence of Joe Colombo and a lot of my dad's friends. And then visiting my dad, realizing he would never get out of prison. We're running out of money. Dad, I got to help you get out because my dad was framed. He was framed in that case. I'll take it to my grave. They claimed he masterminded a nationwide string of bank robberies, and it was a frame, framed up case. 
So I said, well, dad, you're innocent. We got to, we got to do something. I'm not going to do this by going to school for the next six years. And my dad said, okay, if you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. So he proposed me for membership. Somebody has to sponsor you and propose you. And really my dad was my mentor in, in, you know, in a major way. Uh, you know, he was a good student of the life. He knew it well. And he was my mentor for most of the time. Wow. So was there, um, obviously I think a lot of the guys that were, were going to be at this uh, breakfast event in a couple of weeks, <clears throat> I'm sure you'll share this a lot more, but was there a specific incident that was like, God met you and you were like, I, I can't, I can't keep doing this life anymore. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I always say this, God kind of prepares you along the way. To me, it wasn't a lightning bolt. It was kind of a realization of things that were happening. You know, number one, I meet my wife in 1984, um, young Christian girl who had a mother that was very strong in her faith. And what I realized is I fell in love with her. And if I was going to be with her, my life was a direct contradiction to what these women believe in. That's number one, even though I wasn't buying into it. Number two, I was a major target of law enforcement. I had seven indictments altogether, two federal racketeering cases, one brought on by Rudy Giuliani. I had a 14 agency task force that was assigned to me to put me in jail for the rest of my life. Fact. That's how much of a target I became while I was on the street. So mid-1980s, the racketeering law is wreaking havoc on my life, on my former life. Everybody's going to jail, 100-year sentences, 50-year sentences. It was, And I looked at it and I said, you know, this life is really in trouble. It really is. There's no way that I'm going to survive on the street staying in this life. I also saw how destructive it was for the family. But even at that point, I didn't want to betray my oath. It was my wife that was the catalyst because I said, look, if I'm going to marry this girl, she's 20 years old, 21 years old. Am I going to marry her and go to jail for the rest of my life? I got to I got to make a choice. So I had decided to try to move myself out of that life quietly, which is very difficult. But what happened, you know, without getting it all, because this is part of my testimony, um, when they locked me up, finally, I had a 10 year prison sentence. The first night that I spent in solitary, I had spent five years in prison. I was out on parole, violated my parole, went back in, which they said would have been for the rest of my life. The feds were very upset with me because I refused to cooperate. And um, it was that first night that I had my Jesus come to Jesus moment. And that was when a, a guard pushed the Bible through the uh, slot in my door. And I picked it up and started reading it for really the first time in my life. And without getting into all the detail that I'll certainly share with the men on, on January 7th, uh, that was my first encounter. And it was a defining moment in my life. You know, I, I see we have defining moments in our life that are really radically changing for us. May not mm -hmm. be like the next day, but mentally, emotionally, it causes a radical change. The first really defining moment for me was when my father proposed me into a criminal lifestyle life-changing event. Next defining moment was me meeting my wife. And then the real defining moment was my come to Jesus moment when I picked up that Bible and my life changed forever at that point. Did you have, yeah. now, so was it five more years? Did you end up serving the, the full 10 or because you did five and then you went back in, you said, right? 
Yeah, I well, with good time, I maxed out. I did eight years, and with good time, I was under the old law where, you, you know, you, you still had good time, so your sentence was shortened just by law because you, your good time, if it didn't get taken away, and mine never got taken away. So uh, even though they told me when they violated me, they said I would never be a free man again, quote. They were going to try to indict me on another case. They couldn't do that. Uh, so I ended up, they gave me four years on the violation and I spent 35 more months in prison with good time. And um, I spent 29 months and seven days in solitary confinement. And it was during that time that uh, my faith really grew. And I came out of there believing that the Bible really was God's word and that Jesus was my risen savior. And I want to, you know, I make this clear to the men. I didn't buy into it quickly. I challenged God. Because I said, God, I trusted my father. I took a blood oath. Look where I am. I said, I can't do this a third time. And basically, in those years in the hole, I was in a search for the truth. I had my wife send me in a number of books. I studied every faith, every meaningful faith, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism. I studied it all, even Catholicism. I grew up a Catholic, but I was never really into Catholicism. I just, I was in a Catholic school. But, um, and the evidence was so powerful for me um for christianity that it just won me over i said this is it you know so uh and and ever since coming out of prison in 95 it's only gotten stronger because the evidence has only become more powerful and i deal with evidence i don't deal with nonsense to me everything has to be there has to be a basis in fact for everything so uh, i'm i'm trying kind of role-playing this through my head i'm sure a lot of guys are you know the you get out of prison um, how does that play out then when you go back to, you know, the guys and say like, what exactly like the, like, Hey, I, I you know, I'm a different guy now. I'm, I'm not going to be in the mob anymore. Like, like the, how, how does that play out, you know, getting out and doing what you're doing now? Well, if I would have walked into a room and said, guys, I'm done. I wouldn't have walked out of the room. You don't quit the life. Because right away, people are worried. Number one, you took a blood oath, and that blood oath is forever. Uh, number two, suspicion would be immediately that you're going to cooperate in some way. You're going to tell the secrets of the life. You're not allowed to do that. Um, you know, there was a contract on my life because it became public that I was walking away. Life magazine wrote a big story. It became very public. And then, you know, uh, my dad was very upset with me. And everybody thought I was going to become a cooperating witness because the feds, the FBI put it out there. They put my name on a witness list. They, they can be very dirty when they want to be, as we're finding out now, you know, with yeah. uh, Twitter files. But um, they put my name on the witness list to try to put pressure on me of major trials that were going on in New York with my friends because I could have hurt a lot of people. Uh, but then I never show up at these trials. And then I get violated and sent back in prison. So guys on the street started to realize, well, he's not hurting anybody. He really just wants out of the life. Now, does that still get you killed? Yeah. I mean, I can't go back to Brooklyn now uh, and say, hey, guys, you know, I'm moving back into the neighborhood. I wouldn't last 24 hours. But, you know, I also know, you know, I believe in God, but God doesn't tell you to be stupid. You know, you can't just yeah. throw yourself in front of a train. So um, and you know what? I, this was God's plan for my life because I didn't plan any of this. But if you see the course that he navigated for me, I could I could. I could sit here all morning and afternoon and tell you things that happened that were never planned 
that absolutely were God's plan for my life. And I believe that a thousand percent. So, so again, just follow up question because the, the, again, this is all based on movies. Okay. You're the, this is the first real actual like conversation I've had with a legitimate person and probably in my life. So you, you, you got out, you didn't get out through the angle of, you know, ratting on everyone and then going into witness protection. You went, you know, the other way of kind of just working out, you getting out. Do you ever run into guys like from the life now or like it, it, if you were in an airport and you ran into some guy who was in witness protection, like how, how did, how, like how did, how do, how would that go now based on how you got out? Like if you ran into someone at a Starbucks and they're like, oh my gosh, Michael, like, and you're like, you know, Hey, I know you from back in the day. They're like, oh uh, yeah, they, they all call me Richard now. Like, it's like, wait, Richard, what? <laughs> like, how would that all go? Well, let me, uh, first of all, it's, it's funny that you say that because I've had guys from my former life now not guys that i really knew because everybody i ran with dead or in prison everybody wiped out right yeah but the new guys i've gotten a call from uh you know the son of somebody that i knew hey mike nobody's earning any money right now come on come on back you know you'll be welcomed with open arms you know so i've had those calls uh and as far as me meeting other people well, just about everybody I know that's out of that life now has gone through the witness protection program and done the whole route. and They've relocated themselves. Sammy Gravano, Sammy the Bull. I think you might have heard of him. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was John Gotti's underboss. Well, Sammy and I become good friends. I was with him last Tuesday in, in Phoenix. You know, we're doing a film together. So, you know, he's trying to turn his life around also. I know his family, you know, Anthony Ruggiano. You know, his dad was a made guy. Anthony was a made guy. Again. Went into the program, out now. We become friends, you know. There's a bunch of guys that went through the witness protection program that are out in various places through the country that have contacted me. And I talk to them, you know. Um, but Sammy and I have become good friends. You know, he was higher up there. And, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I've encountered these people, you know. You know, understand this, too. I mean, I could have never stayed in New York. I would have never made it. There's too yeah. many guys, you know, every, and I was too well known. So, you know, living out here is a little bit different. So you moved out to, to um, Orange County pretty recent after getting out? Oh, I moved out before I got out, actually, because uh, my okay. wife was a California girl. So we moved okay. out to California in uh, actually it was late 84, just before Got I it. went to prison. Gotcha. So not only did you, you know, you you move so that helped a ton and then you just slowly you know stop being a part of things and little by little they stop bothering you yeah and you know and I, I told my father <clears throat> I was upset and I sent word to him I said dad look I'm not gonna hurt anybody I'm not in this to that but I'm done with the life I'm out he was very upset I didn't speak I didn't see my dad for 10 years after this happened and then he was in and out of prison. You know, he kept violating his parole. But then after 10 years, he sent for me and he said, I really need to see you. And, you know, word was on the street when the feds told me that there was a contract on my life, which obviously I knew. They told me that they got word from their informants that my father went along with the contract. And I believe that because if I was going to be a witness, you can't do that. So my dad was in a position where I can't stand up for my son if he's going to be hurting people. I get it. That's the life. It's terrible, but that's the way it is. So after 10 years, he says, I, I really need to see you. So 
He said, I want to meet you in such and such a place. And I said, no, dad, I'll come to your house. I'm not meeting you anywhere. Because quite honestly, I didn't trust my dad 100%. I said, I'll meet you at your house and uh, when my mother is home. So I meet him at like 530 in the morning. He said, well, you know, we got to be careful because uh, we're both. he was on parole and I'm a felon. I couldn't really see him unless we got permission. I said, dad, I know how to shake the cops. Don't worry about it. Nobody's going to be following me. So I get to his house at like six in the morning and I walk in the door and I'll never forget. He looks there. He's standing there and he looks at me and he said, if you were to listen to me, you would have been the boss of the Colombo family. That was his first words to me. And I said, dad, are you in like a time warp, a twilight zone? Do you realize what's happening in the past 10 years? And he said to me, I'll never forget. He said, you're really serious about all this Bible stuff? Because I've been speaking at that time already, given my testimony and I had written my book. And I said, yeah, dad, I am. I'm very serious. And he said, all right, let's talk. And that's kind of how we broke the ice. It was just like that, you know. Um, so, so many strange things happened along the way that I believe were just God ordained. I, I really mm -hmm. mean that, you know, until this very day, you know, to be accepted like I am. I mean, you got to understand, I've spoken all over the world in every forum that you can imagine from professional college sports to prisons, to juvenile halls, to high schools, you know, churches, uh, corporate board meetings, uh, you know, ticketed events and play, you name it. And it's so well received. And the gospel message always comes out. Hmm. Always. It's beautiful. Man, I love that. Well, you know, what is, cause you, you've, it's just experienced so much. The you know, I, I think of guys that you know they're they deal with stuff and you know they come to know Jesus and and so they're forgiven and you know, all those things are true, but the, but they're also they're still kind of dealing with the scars, the memories, like the 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 life. I mean, the life that they lived and everyone is life's different, but you know, through what you've lived through, uh, you've experienced things, seen things that you know for most guys i mean most guys will never go their whole lives never experiencing it how how have you been able to, to to you know bring your faith into you know into your life while having had dealt with you know all the things that you've dealt with in the past like how, how have you like figured your way and navigated your way through that well you know i think i understand exactly what you're saying you know and i think you have to really, really buy into the Christian faith. You have to really buy into confession of sins uh, and in a way that you can't make up for them. You confess your sins, you admit to them, you repent, and you really accept Jesus as your Savior. And you really understand that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And God's grace exists for all of us who genuinely and sincerely confess our sins and then go on to do better in our lives. You can't remain in a pattern of sin. It's the only way you can deal with it because people have asked me, Michael, do you do what you do today to make up for what you did in the past? And I said, I can't make up for what I did. You can't undo something that's done. It's done. I spent 20 years on the street in that life. It's done. I take full responsibility for it. But if I didn't have my faith and I didn't believe that um, there is paradise at the end of this for those of that believe I would have a much harder time with this because I would, I would carry this guilt along the way with me and say, well, what's going to happen to me? You, you know, 
What happens? Because I was a bad person at one time. How am I going to suffer for it? What's going to happen? And, and the reason I can talk like this, because that's my experience. And so many people have told me the same thing. Well, Michael, I can't rid myself of this. I said, that's because you're not a true believer. You don't understand what, what Jesus did for us on the cross. And you have to, because everybody's a sinner. You got to understand in God's eyes, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And I, I've taken that to heart. And it's helped me genuinely. And it's what I impress upon so many guys that, again, the same thing. Michael, I have struggles because what I did yesterday. So what are you going to do about it? Nothing. There's nothing you can do about it. Even if you went and tried to undo something that might you might be able to undo it. So what? You can't. So you have to really, and maybe buy-in is, is the wrong word. You have to really believe. And the only way you believe, how, how do you do that? Okay. It's we have to constantly be nourished in the word. We have to be around people that are nourished. I heard such a wonderful message from our pastor yesterday, you know, during Christmas. It, it, this is important. It's important because, number one, we're absorbing the truth of the cross. And number two, it helps us live it out. You know, I also tell people when I came to Christ, I didn't get a lobotomy. I didn't forget. I, and I'm still capable of doing everything I did before, but I won't do it. I won't do it because I have bought into my faith and I understand wrong from right at this point. And I won't live in a pattern of sin anymore. Um, but you have to be constantly nourished. You have to be around people that share the same uh, beliefs, genuinely sincere. And it's, it's so helpful. You know, there was, you know, when I was a Catholic and again, I'm not knocking Catholics. I'm just saying that I wasn't ready for it at that time. I come out of church like, okay, I fulfilled my obligation. I came to church on Sunday. You got to do it. It's a sin if you don't. I come out of church now. I come out of a men's ministry where I'm speaking and fellowshipping with men. I feel wonderful. I feel terrific. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. It's no longer an obligation. It's this is it. This is what I look forward to. You know, so if, if people can understand that and bring that into their life, uh, God, life becomes just so much more pleasant, even through the bad times. Mm. Yeah, it sounds sounds like uh, understanding the surrender and receiving of grace is if I could like kind of put a thesis on that of just fully surrendered and going, I can't do anything about the life that I used to live. I'm surrendered to that and I, I'm all in for God's grace and I'm going to move forward. I'm going to be a changed man and and make disciples and, and preach the gospel. That's what you've done with your life. And it's it's incredible your impact because you know, you guys love mobster stuff. Mm -hmm. and you have such an incredible platform to share the good news. And I love that you've, you've really surrendered that and you've, you've made tremendous impact. I'm sure many guys have listened to you who are non-believers because of your story, who would never show up at a church and hear a sermon. Uh, I'm sure you hear those stories all the time. Michael, man, your story changed my life. Uh, so thank you for all that you do. It's been amazing. Uh, one of the questions I had, which was probably better fit for the speed round of the mafia, but we have uh, in the men's ministry, we have a trip called G4, mm. which is is uh, the, the four G's are God, guys, guns, and grub. We eat like kings. We shoot lots of guns. We're out in the middle of the desert. It's an incredible trip. I'm going to publicly invite you to come out. I don't even know if you're allowed, but I would love for you to come out one day. But uh, 
you know, guys in our ministry, a lot of them love guns. And so I wanted to ask, you know, what, what, what did you use to carry? What's your favorite firearm? Uh, if that's okay to ask, hopefully I'm not in trouble. By that's asking. Okay. No, this is an important one, Tim, because I actually just got the AOK <laughs> to get a new firearm. So this, I'm actually oh. taking notes right now. So okay, this is good. important, an important question. Yeah, full disclosure and disclaimer, I cannot own a firearm because I'm a convicted felon <laughs> and uh, therefore I can't. Um, you know, banning firearms, there's probably 300 million firearms on the street right now that are illegal. If I wanted a firearm, I could have one within two hours. So for all <laughs> those people that, you know, uh, are looking for gun control, don't knock yourself out because the guns will be, appear for those that want to get them and, and do the wrong thing with them. Trust me on that. We never had any permits. But, uh, you know, the, the, the two guns that were used, the two firearms that we used at that time were either a 38, once in a while a 22, and a shotgun. That's it. That's the only ones. Now, I've seen others and guys, you know, are fascinated with different ones, but they weren't used, you know, for any purpose. I mean, look, unfortunately, in that life, nobody was a sharpshooter. If something was going to be done, it was done at close range. And like I said, shotgun, 38, 22. Those were the those were the weapons of uh, choice at that time. Twenty two. I like that. Yeah, very light, small, effective. <laughs> those are all things people say about me: light, small, and effective. So there you go. Uh, you know, the, just to, as we're ramping things down, you know, one of the one of the big questions uh, that I have, which uh, is may may sound ridiculous, but if uh, you know, is, is there ever a a desire so maybe it doesn't sound ridiculous is there ever a desire to get back into that life like the you know you say you know maybe you know the son of whoever gives you a call i mean it feels like it probably at this point would be easy for you if you want to kind of insert yourself back in is there ever a desire to is that something that is completely removed from you now like where like what is that like yeah i mean there's no desire to get back into that life at all but you know quite honestly the good parts of that life I missed. I mean, I enjoyed very much. I enjoyed the camaraderie with my guys. I enjoyed the, I got your back, you got mine. Look, it's a men's, it's a men's life. There's no question. And I don't think there's anything more powerful than a group of men banding together for a singular purpose. And, you know, we were a very tight knit group. I had a tight crew and, you know, they're all gone. They're all gone every single one of them. And uh, I miss that. We had good times, you know, you know, obviously we made a lot of money together. My crew is known for that, but we also shared some very good times, you know, and I always say God is very gracious because in a different way, I have that now with the fellowship that I share among my Christian brothers. Um, but yeah, look, there, there was perks to that life. I mean, look, I didn't mind uh, you know, walking into the Copacabana and, and getting a ringside table. I didn't mind, you know, uh, people treating me a certain way. But I always see one, one thing. My father was so wise. He always told me this. He said, Michael, remember this. In life, always take care, be courteous and kind to the little people. Now, when he meant little people, he didn't mean that in a demeaning way. It was just his way of talking. He meant the valet parker the waiter, you know, the, the dry cleaner, people that take care of you in a service wise, he said, take care of them, be respectful, because they're the ones that make you strong. And you know what, he's right. The ones on top, they're always looking to cut you down in a way, you know, many of them. 
But these little people, you know, I'm telling you, there was times when I would walk into a room because I was I was a sport with money and I took care of people and I respected them. I made them feel important. And, you know, they would usher me right to the front. Sometimes it was a problem because there could have been a, a boss or a, a somebody with more authority than me. And I'm getting this kind of treatment and they're not. They're not in your status or stature. So, Michael, we're, we're really looking forward to having you in a couple weeks with the Men and Mariners on our January 7th breakfast. Uh, and anything, any nuggets you want to final thoughts you want to throw out? We don't we don't want to give them all, all away, but uh, maybe you could share a little bit of, of why guys need to come and some of the things you might uh, be talking about in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean you know, I'm looking forward to it, number one. And, you know, there's an issue out there today that I think we need to address as Christians. And that's all this talk about, you know, toxic masculinity that is being uh, pushed out there for whatever reason. And I want to I want to talk about, you know, what it means to be a man in current times in 2023. What is a man's man in 2023? And the model of that, the only model for that, the only true model for that is the the only man's man that ever walked the face of the earth. And that was Jesus of Nazareth. And I want to look at his qualities and I want people to understand, you know, what manhood is really all about so that we can dismiss this toxic masculinity um, phrase that's out there and talk about what what a real man is all about. And I think that's a that's a worthwhile discussion with men. And as part of my testimony, part of the Q&A, I think we need to get into that. Love it. This was great, Michael. This is great. Thank you for spending time with us. Oh, my pleasure, guys. Uh